How many people are there in your family? It's not a trick question. Go ahead, just uh, look around the living room. Count, you'll figure it out. Wives, help your husbands with the math. You guys will get this. How many people in your family? And now, here's the next question. How many people in the family you grew up in? Some of you parents might want to tell your kids the answer to this question. It might surprise them. Uh, families are getting smaller and smaller with every generation that goes on. My dad was one of seven, seven kids. And that was not a big family at that time. My parents had four kids and we were one of the smaller families on the block. Uh, my wife and I had three kids and... By the time we had our third, people were starting to look at us funny, like maybe we were being a little ridiculous with this kid thing. Um, and now most families are one or two kids, if that. Uh, my eldest daughter is pregnant with number five right now. Yeah, that's, that's five kids under the age of eight. So uh, just think about that for a second. Um, it's the craziest thing. People look at them like they're from the circus when they go into the store or something like that. Like, what is wrong with these people? But for some reason, they just keep getting pregnant. I know the reason. It's just, that's my daughter. I don't really like to think about that. So let's move on from there. But I just pray for them, right? I pray for them. Because five little human beings in one house... That is a lot of selfishness. That is a whole lot of turmoil just waiting to happen. I'm amazed at how well they all get along. Um, probably their parents would beg to differ on that one, but I'm the grandparent and I'm telling the story. And as far as I can tell, they're all little angels and we're going to leave it at that. I guess they seem like angels to me because uh, I compare them to my brother and I when we were growing up. My parents had four kids. They had two older kids and two younger kids with a big, about a 10 or 12 year gap in between. So by the time I came along, my older siblings were teenagers. They were out of the house by the time I was maybe starting school. So um, I kind of grew up just with my brother who's two years older and, and we sort of were raised together and we fought like cats and dogs all of the time not some of the time not once in a while all of the time we fought like cats and dogs if you've been a part of this church been listening to me preach for years you know my story my mom drank a lot I'm about to tell you why my mom drank a lot my brother and I were absolutely impossible we fought all the time and now I realize it was 80% my fault. Please don't tell my brother I said that. I realize it's about 80% my fault. My brother Eric is like the kindest, gentlest, sweetest, most caring, nicest guy you are ever, ever going to meet. But I am living proof that if you set your mind to it, you can mess up any relationship. He, my poor brother, had the misfortune of being uh, the sibling to probably the meanest, angriest brother there ever was. And we could fight over anything. We would fight over a game of Monopoly. 
I want to be the boot. No, you were the boot last time. Well, forget it. I'm not playing with you. That, it took us about 10 seconds to try to get into the game before we were fighting. We fought over baseball cards. Is that your card or is it my card? I say it's my card. Well, I say it's my card. I would just tear the card in half and go, well, then you can have half. We fought over video games when video games finally came around, you know, like uh, who won in Pong when the light goes back and forth from one paddle to the next. And when we got to be teenagers, man, we fought over girls. I mean, we fought over girls. We literally had fist fights over girls. One of the greatest joys of my life was when my brother had a girlfriend trying to steal his girlfriends from him. It was kind of a, a, a mission for me. Fighting was just a normal way of life for us. We were used to it. I don't know if you grew up in a family like that. Maybe you did. Maybe that kind of describes the family that you're in now pretty well. I don't know what it is, but somehow it is easy to be harsh and unforgiving with the people that you're closest to, your family. Well, we're right in the middle of a series of messages on the church and one way the church is repeatedly described in the New Testament is the metaphor of a family. God refers to us as a family. We are the family of God. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are no longer strangers and aliens, but we are all a part of God's household. 1 Timothy 5, we're taught to see each other as fathers and brothers and sisters and mothers. In Galatians 6, we're told to do good to everyone, but especially to the household of the faith. And in 1 Peter 3, God talks about how to treat our family members. And then he widens the focus a little bit, and he gets beyond just how husbands ought to treat their wives, how wives ought to treat their husbands, how children ought to respect their parents. And he broadens it into this metaphor for the church, and he talks to all of us about how we ought to treat one another. So we've been talking about unity, the second leg of our stool, and we've been saying that the church is called to be united. Well, today we're going to get into some of the specifics. Today we're going to get practical and we're going to look a little bit at what does it look like for the church to be united? What does it take for you and me to actually be one in Christ? And I want you to take your Bibles and join me in 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, 1 Peter's all the way to the end of the Bible. It's like five books from the end. Go to Revelation and just go left a little bit and you'll come to 1 Peter uh, and I want you to go to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to look at two verses together today. Verses 8 and 9, 1 Peter chapter 3. After he's talked about family relationships, now he's going to launch into summing it up and talking about church relationships. And here's what he says. To sum up, all of you, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. So last week, the general principle of unity. This week, what does it look like to get specific and to get practical about unity? 
Today, I want to get specific about that and, and help us understand how to actually live out unity within the body of Christ. I don't know about you, but I love, love, love the diversity of the body of Christ. Even in our little local church, I love the fact that there are people in my church family that were it not for the fact that we were family in the church, we would never even know each other. And we would never uh, spend any time together. We would never talk to each other. We would never pray for each other. We would never invest in each other's lives. But because we're family in the body of Christ, we have a relationship that is mutually beneficial that we're all committed to. I love that fact about the church. We're simply family. Now, if we're going to compare the church to a family, let's admit that every family has at least one or two people in the family who you just really shake your head when they come around, <laughs> right? Every family's got some kind of uncle or some kind of weird cousin or maybe your brother or your sister who, you know, you just kind of, when they're around, you think, man, I just hope they don't embarrass me. Every family's got somebody like that. Now, I realize that for some of you, uh, I'm that person in our church family. I get that. But before you get too haughty about that, you should realize that there's a really good chance that you might be that person for me too. But in our church family, there's uh, a lot of diversity. And Peter tells us in a church family where there's going to be that much diversity, where we don't have that much in common except for Christ, how do we live in a way that produces genuine unity? And it's all in those verses that we just read, verses 8 and 9. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. He gives us a list of things that are the traits of a family that is unified in Christ. The traits of the family of God. And the first one is, we're harmonious. Harmonious. He says that in a family, we're all different, but that is a good thing because it creates harmony. Now, if you ever took piano lessons or played in a school band or maybe you play an instrument or you're a singer, you know a little bit about how harmony works in music. You know, you can play a note and it sounds perfect and it's right on, but there's no beauty to it. There's no depth to it. There's no texture to it. But when you play a chord, it's very different. So I asked Pastor Ricky to help us out a little bit. So I'm going to ask Ricky, Ricky, if you would just um, play for us uh, the G string. Wait, wait a second. Wait. <laughs> Let me rephrase that. <laughs> Sorry. Let me rephrase that. Play for us the string on your guitar that is a G. Play that. Okay, play it again. All right. Doesn't he play that well? He's really good at that, isn't he? Now, you heard that. That's a G. That's a G in tune. But now I'm going to ask him to play the G chord. Ricky, play a G chord for us. Wow. That is so much fuller, right? It's, it's not just one note. It's all of these uh, strings playing together different notes, but in the same key, they play in harmony. There's, there's so much more depth to it. There's so much more beauty to it. 
even though the G is just the right note, when you, when you surround it with the other notes, it creates this beautiful chord. That's harmony. And in the body of Christ, Peter says, harmony is supposed to be descriptive of who we are as the family of God. That means we don't all play the same note. We don't all sing the same note. But the note that we play, the note that we contribute as part of the body of Christ is supposed to fit in with the other notes so that something beautiful comes forth. Peter says, if you're going to be in the family of God, you have to contribute to the harmony. And what happens so easily is that we get uh, sort of playing completely different notes that are in different keys and different uh, rhythms and different uh, tones. And as a result, what you hear is cacophonous. You hear something that you vaguely recognize as music, but it doesn't sound beautiful. It doesn't draw anybody to it. Nobody says, man, I want to turn that up. Everybody says, oh, I want to turn that off. We got to be so careful. He says we're supposed to contribute to harmony. If all the notes were the same, there'd be no beauty, no texture. But God hasn't called us to be all the same. Here's something you can remember. When it comes to the family of God, unity is not uniformity. Unity is not uniformity. He has just called us all to play our unique part, but in the concert of what's happening. So you could play one string on a guitar. You could play a chord on a guitar. You could have a whole band playing different instruments. As long as they're playing the same uh, key and the same notes and the same chords, it's going to sound that much fuller. You could have an entire symphony orchestra. An oboe doesn't sound anything like a violin, but when they play together in harmony, it produces something absolutely beautiful. God says he's got a vision for his family. And that if we would be harmonious and we would be thinking, how does what I offer contribute to the beauty of the whole? then the whole thing would shine with beauty. So number one, we need to be harmonious. But it takes more than harmony to be a healthy family. There has to also be sympathy, Peter says. And by the way, that word sympathy in your Bible, um, you know, if you're taking notes, I would add to it the word empathy. I would put sympathy slash empathy. Because in the Greek, the word includes both of those. Now, if you're kind of confused what I'm talking about, sympathy is when someone is hurting and you're sorry they're hurting. Empathy is when someone is hurting and therefore you're hurting too. And, and what God calls us to is not just sympathy that we care enough to be sorry that someone's hurting or happy that someone's rejoicing, but that we actually rejoice when they rejoice. We actually weep when they weep. We actually join together in this. We saw this last week in Romans 12. Romans 12 verse 15 says that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And you know what? If we're going to be honest, in the church, we are not always good at this. We tend to judge others a lot. We tend to argue with others. We tend to tell others that they shouldn't feel what they feel. 
This has been one of the great lessons, I think, that we have a chance to learn in the body of Christ right now. When there's some racial unrest that we're dealing with, so much of this has to do with listening. It's not about gathering your statistics to make your argument. It's about caring enough about the other person to realize that they're hurting and therefore you're hurting. When we do try to listen enough to put ourselves in someone else's shoes and try to feel what they feel, it changes the whole narrative. And we come together instead of being ripped apart. Here's something I want us to remember as we think about unity. Whether it's unity in a family, the scripture says in the family, God wants unity. He says that he takes two and the two become one. And he says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. The two become one. So in your marriage, here's a, here's a hint. If it's pulling you apart, it's not of God. If it's drawing you together, it is of God. The enemy is going to keep trying to pull your family apart, and God is trying to make you one. The exact same thing is true in the church. The Bible tells us that in the church, that all of us have, are many members, but together we make one body. All of us together are one. If something is tearing us apart, that's the enemy's strategy. But if something is bringing us together in genuine unity... That brings glory to God. Well, the next thing Peter tells us, if we're going to have the traits of the family of God, he says that our love for each other should be brotherly. Now, I just told you about my relationship with my brother, right? So you think, wow, brotherly love, great. But you know what? Even in those days when we fought all the time, if you went after my brother, you had to deal with me too. That was the way that worked. Uh, when we were growing up, we were all athletes and uh, we played sports together. Uh, my brother Eric is an outstanding athlete. Well, now he's an old fart, but he used to be an outstanding athlete. He was a great baseball player. He was a great football player, but he was not much of a basketball player. Basketball was my, my game. That was the thing I excelled in. And he wasn't so good at basketball. But still, we would go down to the local um, court and get him pickup games and we would play. And it was crazy because he just didn't seem to have finesse on the basketball court. And so he was constantly fouling guys and fouling them hard. Like some guy goes up for a layup and he would just hit the guy. And always there was words exchanged. And always I had to step in and if you were going to fight him you had to fight me too and that's the way it went when my when my two older brothers were adults they were playing in a men's basketball league and Eric's out on the court and and a guy steals the ball on the other team and takes off for an easy layup Eric chases him down and when he gets close he trips over his own feet and tackles the guy into the wall well, the guy jumps up and he's ready to punch. Mike, my other brother, has to run down there, jump in between and say, hey, 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 don't hit him. He didn't mean it. He's just that bad. <laughs> but that's what we did for each other because we're brothers. This idea of brotherly love says that you and I are supposed to have each other's backs no matter what. That there's a bond between us that is for eternity. That's unbreakable. In the body of Christ, we are to bear one another's burdens because we're family. 
We're in this together. Now, Peter goes on with this list of traits in the family of God. Next, he says, we need to be kind-hearted. Look at that verse again. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted. Notice he doesn't say, be kind. He says, be kind-hearted. He's not talking about just a behavior that would be counted as kind. He's not just talking about doing the right thing, doing a nice thing for somebody. He's talking about kindness that comes from the heart. What did Jesus say? Uh, it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. So it's not just a matter of controlling your words. It's a matter of having your heart in the right place. Kind-hearted. That, that means a genuine concern for other people. Not just a willingness to serve others, but a desire to serve one another. And if you would have to honestly admit when you look closely in the mirror that you kind of lack that desire, then I have a solution for you. Get closer to Jesus. Because Jesus reeks of kind-heartedness. Just, just picture this. Everywhere he went, oh, here's a leper over here. And everybody says, hey, get the leper away from Jesus. What does Jesus do? He goes to the leper. Oh, here comes some children interrupting Jesus. What does Jesus do? He brings the children up onto his lap, even though everybody else is trying to keep the children away. Think about the woman who's caught in adultery and she's thrown at his feet. And all those rabbis standing there with stones in their hand. And what does Jesus do? He shows compassion to her. Kind-heartedness. If you want to become more kind, spend more time with Jesus because he'll rub off on you. And his kindness comes from the heart. And, and if you want to get near Jesus, there's one thing you need to know. You're going to have to humble yourself. And that's Peter's next thing on the list he talks about humility. A trait in the family of God is humility. Now, I want to skip over just if you just turn left one book, you're going to find the book of James. And in James chapter 4, beginning in verse 6, I want to read you this passage. Speaking of God, James says, He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God, resist the devil. And he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. God is opposed to the proud, but he graciously welcomes the humble with open arms. I don't know if you've ever thought much about that. How do you, how do you think it is to have God opposed to you? That God doesn't want anything to do with you. God wants to push you away. God wants to put distance between you and him. The scripture says God is opposed to the proud. He stands against the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In the midst of all this social unrest, some of us have been just the opposite of humble. We've stiffened our necks. We've justified our position. We've loaded up on arguments and statistics and memes and social media posts and articles. 
We've justified our angry hatred and we've doubled down on malice. When you do that, you're distancing yourself from Jesus and the grace that you so desperately need. My friends, we are the family of God. And these current societal hardships are the perfect opportunity for us to humble ourselves. Perfect opportunity for us to draw near to Jesus and let him shine through us. Remember what it says in James, but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. James 1, 19 and 20. Our prayer should be, oh Lord, make us humble so that we can reflect your amazing grace to others. And as we close with 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, let me just read it to you again. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Listen, disunity or discord is something that evolves. I do something to hurt you. You get angry, do something to hurt me. So I say something mean to you. You get angry and say something mean to me. And it just devolves into hatred, anger, and violence. But the opposite can be true. If I will give a blessing in return for an insult... If I will love when I am being hated, then I can begin to move the cycle in the right direction. There are some difficult issues facing American Christians today. Social unrest, violence, racism, injustice, anger, crime, a polarizing election year, hypocrisy in the church. Not to mention a killer virus, the likes of which we've never seen in our society. And a world that is dying apart from Jesus. What's God's plan? What is God's solution for all of this? The church. He has told us over and over, my church, loving and united, will be the light of the world. That is the plan. I say this all the time. God has a plan A. The church is God's plan A, and there is no plan B. God's going to do it through the church. So the calling is upon us, Christians. The church, loving and united, is the light of the world that shines brightly as things get darker. You, if you're a Christian, are a part of God's great plan. Don't miss the opportunity to play your part in creating the harmony that God always had in mind when he created the church in the first place. Join me in prayer. God, today we just come before you and we humble ourselves at your throne. We confess that as your people, we haven't always represented your heart. That as your people, sometimes, Lord, we go off on tangents and make them our issues when those are not your primary issues. 
That, Father, even when we're chasing after goals that are good and valuable, oftentimes we leave behind things like love and unity. And so help us, God. Yes, we want to see this world changed, but we know that change has to begin in the household of God. And so, Father, change our hearts. Change my heart. Put in me the heart of Jesus so that my actions will reflect your incredible love. And then change the world through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.